Amen. His kingdom does endure forever. Will you please take a seat and uh, invite you to pray with me this morning before we open our scriptures to Second Thessalonians 2. Lord, we come to you this morning as a people who need to be reminded that only your kingdom endures. Even as we gather this morning on what our nation celebrates as a day of independence, we know that nations have come and gone, but your word abides forever. That is our hope. And we praise you that we find ultimate freedom, ultimate independence, freedom from sin in Christ Jesus. So this morning as we celebrate as Americans the freedom of this country from tyranny, we need to remember that the greatest tyranny that we face is that of our own flesh. And Lord, we confess that even this week, we have acted in rebellion against a good and loving God. And as your people, we confess that without Christ, we are sinners. In Christ, we are beloved, chosen by God, elect before the foundations of the earth, recipients of unmerited grace. And we are reminded of that need once again. We thank you that you promise forgiveness to all who confess their sins. And that ultimately for the Christian, our union with Christ means that we have been severed from those bonds that once tied us to sin. And that we are free to serve you, free to live for you. But we're mindful also, Lord, that even as we gather in a country that is free, that bad things still happen and that one's freedom is not viewed as freedom by another. So even as we saw last week in Roe v. Wade being overturned in this wrestling that the states will now have to encounter with, the, uh, with abortion, We know, Lord, that even some of our brothers and sisters, and I I think this morning of Henson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon, a church that has been a light in that community for the gospel, a church that on their property is a pregnancy crisis center, a church that was attacked last week. Windows were broken, graffiti, people were uh, yelled at and harassed, a church that is seen a mob gather around it and protest. And yet, Lord, these brothers and sisters, you place them strategic in a place where they can share the gospel even in the face of persecution. We pray for safety for our brothers and sisters there, that that they would have a tenderness to those who are angry over this overturning of this uh, constitutional right that you would also give them the ability to speak the gospel to their friends who are unbelievers, who are mourning with them over what has happened to this church. Lord, we're thankful that not all your churches are suffering. And so this morning we pray for Hope Church in Anderson, Indiana, a church that's renting space now, outgrowing that space, and faced with some significant building decisions. And as they wrestle with your will over being uh, where to go and how to move forward, we pray that you would give them direction. We're thankful that the gospel is bearing fruit in that community. Lord, we, we pray this morning recognizing that not only do we have spiritual needs of salvation, of sanctification, of perseverance, but we also have physical needs. And so we pray for those in our church who need to find work. We pray that you would provide income for them, that you would provide employment for them. We pray for those who are struggling with health issues. And this morning we're mindful of Sandy Gullings and Marianne Gamble, and there are many others that we could share as well and that we have prayed over as a church. We pray that you would sustain, that you would heal. But most of all, Lord, that even in these tangible, temporal circumstances that we find ourselves, that you would teach us what we don't know about you. That you would give faith where we have none. 
that you would transform us into what you want us to be. We pray this for the sake of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen. I'll be honest with you. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I should always be honest, right? I have no introduction for this text. I am grieved by this passage. It is a very, very sobering and heavy word. How can you create a story, draw an illustration, uh, make some kind of anecdotal reference to the end of the world? How can we glibly take a Hollywood movie and somehow try to impose it upon the text to give us some sense of the weightiness of what we're talking about? Saving Private Ryan is a far stretch away from the realities of what we find in our text this morning. So if you would open your copy of the scriptures and join me in the book of 2 Thessalonians, today we're going to look at chapter 2. And I'll just tell you again that... The bulk of our time is going to be in the first 12 verses. They are the biggest portion of the passage. I think it falls neatly into two pieces. Verses 1 through 12, Paul's answering questions. Two in particular. Has the day of the Lord already taken place? Something he spoke about in his first letter to the Thessalonians. But then he's also addressing why are we persecuted if the day of the Lord has not come? And his answer to that question is because law, the mystery of lawlessness is already here. There is an, a, there's already an antagonism toward the gospel. And so in the first 12 verses, he's, he's answering those questions. And he does that by bringing to clarity for us in some ways. But clearly this is teaching that he had already given to the church at Thessalonica and he's referencing it. So we're going to have questions that I'll be honest with you, we can't answer. He's assuming that they remember what he has taught. And he doesn't spell all that out. And so we wrestle with it and we look at different understandings and interpretations of these passages. And we can draw conclusions, but we've got to be honest that we don't know some of the things that we are asking about from this text. And then, then in verses 13 through 14, or 17, Paul challenges them. In fact, he charges them to stand firm and hold to his teaching. So in verses 1 through 12, he's answering questions about the day of the Lord and why Christians suffer. And in verses 13 through 17, he's calling. His purpose is that you and I as believers, the Thessalonians, what he says to them applies to us. That we would stand firm and hold on to the teaching of the scriptures. And why is that important? Because we are constantly being bombarded bombarded by other teaching, other truths that are lies masquerading as truths, other prophets, as it were, speaking to us and calling us to kind of lay down these old archaic customs and to embrace a new theology a theology that's rooted in the culture of the world in which we live. It's no, nothing's new under the sun. <clears throat> and so here we are in our text this morning. So I'm going to read the first 12 verses, and then we're going to wrestle through them together. Please hear God's word from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is sobering, is it not? I mean, this is a heavy word, and we need to wrestle with it. What is Paul speaking of? Well, in in the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 to the beginning of verse 3, he's introducing his topic. He says right from the beginning, Now concerning your questions about the coming of our Lord Jesus and us being gathered to him, I want you to understand something. I have been just making requests for you. If you go back to uh, chapter 1, he's been praying. Verse 11, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. They're praying that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified in these believers and you in him. So Paul shifts from making requests for these people, interceding on their behalf, to now asking these people and making requests from them. And he says, what I want you to do is this. Two requests. I want you to stop being shaken in mind or alarmed. I I want you to stop being distressed by these false claims that Christ had returned and this church had lost its composure. That the mental agitation, wrestling, is this true or not, had actually turned into some kind of physical behaviors. Whether that was, again, the stopping of work to look for Jesus and to neglect family responsibilities, or whether that was a turning back into sin. If Jesus came and Paul was wrong and we weren't taken with the Lord, then we aren't believers. And then what is the recourse? Our faith is in vain, as he, Paul, Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians. We're miserable people, and so they go back into their sin. Something was taking place in the church. And Paul says, your mental state has affected your behavior, and I want it to stop. Paul's second request is, a, is this prohibition you see at the beginning of verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. Claims to have revelation a spirit by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, Paul says, don't be deceived. If someone claims to have the Spirit of God and they are speaking prophetically, or if someone has written a forgery and signed Paul's name to it, you guys need to remember, I have taught you this repeatedly in the past. I am now teaching you again in these two letters, stop listening to these people. Don't be deceived. And the purpose of what Paul is doing here is that he wants to calm the church, to settle them down, and to call them to center their lives on truth, not lies. So I think this is a really appropriate passage for us. Has the end of Roe v. Wade, is that the culmination of our Christian experience here on earth? No. And the battle has shifted from a federal level to a state level. Have we arrived at a moment where we can kind of like put pause on as a Christian in our spiritual journey? Like I'm not looking at pornography anymore. I'm not gambling. I'm not drinking. I'm not spending my time with people who are not Christians so that it leads me into sin. I'm coming to church now. I'm actually reading my Bible. Does that mean I've now arrived? No. We have to keep pursuing what is true. And so Paul shifts from making a request from these people to teaching. And that is verse 3 through verse 12. 
And he says very clearly, that day will not come, as I've told you again, until this final mass rebellion comes first. And this truth has two realities that we see in verses 3 and 4. Certain things must take place before the day of the Lord will come. And the fact that those things haven't taken place is evidence that the Lord has not returned. So they go hand in hand. These things must happen before it happens, before the day of the Lord comes. And then because they haven't happened, we can take a breath. The day of the Lord hasn't come. What does this apostasy and mass rebellion look like? Well, I spent some time looking at different commentators to get an idea, and it seemed clear that some of them believe that it's both a religious, a moral revolt against God's word, and that it's also a political revolt. Paul would later write to one of his protégés, a guy by the name of Timothy, and he would say this in 2 Timothy 3, For people will be lovers of self. Oh, isn't that, like, wow. That's like Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, any kind of social media thing. That's just like right nail on the head, right? Promote yourself, YouTube. I mean, isn't that what that's all about? People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, as though it were done, he continues, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. This time of rebellion will surpass anything we've ever seen in history. It's going to be greater than any of the ancient wars, Greece, Rome, of the Medes and the Persians, of the Babylonians. It will be greater than World War I or World War II. It will be a time where people around the world will rebel against God and His laws. And we are told even professing believers will defect. Paul would say again in 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is why we as a church need to know the truth and follow it. Because if we don't, if we have a casual acquaintance with the teaching of Scripture, we can easily be misled by someone who is an insincere liar whose conscience has been seared. And they can so winsomely and powerfully convince us that this is the truth that's been hidden from us and it will open like a revelation to us and we will be sucked into it and then we will be drawn away from the faith. This is a real danger for Christians and for those who say they are Christians. After this great apostasy, the man of lawlessness, i.e. the son of destruction, will be revealed. Well, what kind of man is this? Well, if we look at the text, we will see that he will be marked by lawlessness and he represents the very worst of humanity's hatred of God. He's destined for destruction by God. He is a son of hell, quite literally. Destruction. He, he, he embodies the character and qualities of a son of Satan, as we will see in verse 9. And this worldwide apostasy where reason and truth are completely thrown aside will be the means for his coming out. His, his debutante party is going to be chaos in the world. Where both politically structures are torn down 
and society-wise, culture and truth and values are removed, this is where he shows up onto the scene. And notice what we read in the passage. He is not just going to attack Christians and the God of the Scriptures. He's not just attacking God and His image and believers. He will be antagonistic toward any and all religious worship that does not recognize Him alone. He is going to put Himself above all other religions And you know what? Our pluralistic world that says we can agree to disagree, our relativistic world that wants to take truth and massage it and reshape it into what's convenient for them, our materialistic society is going to be replaced by a worldwide authoritative rule under one person who demands all worship. The Scriptures tell us in other places that they will welcome that. Kings will lay down their crowns to this one. Governments will give him authority. They will see him as the solution. The text also tells us that he will set himself up in God's temple and declare himself to be God. Now, whether that literally means that the temple will physically be rebuilt and he will occupy that space as a place where he is kind of setting himself up or whether Paul is using it for a metaphor, think of it this way. The temple mount currently is revered by Muslims, by Jews, and by Christians. Those three religions make up the vast majority of the world's population. I think it's no stretch to say what he is doing is a physical act that represents his dominion over all religions. He's going to go to the very heart of a place that all that three major religions revere, and he is going to establish himself as the exclusive claim to be God, demanding worldwide allegiance and worship. And what does Paul say in verse 5 and 6? He rebukes them. Don't you guys remember I taught you all this? He uses an imperfect tense, which means that he had repeatedly taught them this in the past. And so his rhetorical question is really rebuke. I expected you to remember what I told you because I told you this over and over again. Further, Based on what Paul taught them in verse 6, they ought to know what is restraining him now. He doesn't tell us what that is, but he is drawing from their common conversations and the knowledge that they had. So who is holding the son of destruction back? Is it God? Is it Satan? Is it an angel? Is it the church and the gospel? Is it government, this idea of law and order? And all these commentators have all different views on what exactly is holding him back. Apparently, it was clearly a part of Paul's previous teaching. He just doesn't draw it out from us. But as we see in verses 7 and 8, he returns to teaching again after having this brief rebuke. And what does he say? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Well, what is the mystery of lawlessness? Lawlessness or wickedness, these terms are interchangeable, is what causes people to reject God's truth. His truth as seen in the Old Testament law, his truth seen in the grace of the gospel. And wickedness makes us push both of those aside to embrace our own way a rebellious way against God. I think Paul describes it as a mystery because it is a mystery to unbelievers. You see, think about it this way. The unbeliever doesn't understand why Christians oppose the sexual revolution. Why would a Christian oppose abortion? 
Why would a Christian not welcome autonomy, individualistic? Anybody can be what they want to be. And this idea of affirming one another. If we're really a religion of love, why wouldn't we lovingly let people do whatever they want? And the reason that they don't understand the values of Christianity is because they are blinded to what is evil and where it comes from. It's lost on them. It's a mystery. Lawlessness is not viewed as lawlessness. It's viewed as freedom. And so these are people who explains, it it should explain to us why the world's response to the sanctity of life, to sexuality, to mass shootings, to drugs, crime, poverty, racial injustice, wealth, work, dictators, and government are all wrong. Because the source and nature of wickedness is a mystery to society, society will never come up with the right answers to solve these problems. So, the unbelieving world continues down the path to destruction. The more convinced they become that their cause is right. And so Paul says this mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, verse 7. And then, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed. You see, the mystery of evil cannot be unlocked without God's truth. You can't know what's really wrong if every one of us creates our own standard. Then who's right? I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If what's wrong for you is wrong, but it's right for me, or this is wrong for me and it's right for you, how do we ever know what is true truth? God has to reveal it. He has to show us because it's his nature to reveal truth because he is truth and he does, by his grace, show us. Sin will increase when the restraints are removed. This is why every good parent recognizes they can't let their kids do whatever they want. Free-range parenting, I know it's maybe not the best term, But if you play it out, I mean, I know there's some of us are a little bit more, hey, we're organized, we're structured, we like it. So our kids are going to go to bed at a certain time, and they're not going to do this, they're not going to go do this. And others of us are like, well, give them a little more bandwidth, and we'll let them learn by failing a little bit. Or we'll let the bumps and scrapes teach them some lessons. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a parent who just says, it's not my responsibility, and kids can do whatever they want. Only bad things are going to come from that. And it explains so much in our society, doesn't it, about why there's this decaying of the family and what happens as a result of this. But this isn't just a a sermon about morality and culture. We are being told that there is one who is restraining this lawless one. Even though the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, there is going to come a day where the lid is going to come off of this thing and it's going to get even worse. And rebellion is going to take place and that will be the season in which he is revealed. Now, some think that this was the Roman Empire is restraining the lawless one. That's, uh, there's this exegetical summary series which is really helpful. It, it takes all these different commentaries and it kind of condenses their ideas and it lines out the different objections and different opinions. And so some think that Paul was speaking of the force of the Roman Empire. Uh, Power concentrated in the emperor and the removal of law and order is what will unleash the lawless one. Or that the Holy Spirit is actually restraining the lawless one. Or that, as I said a moment ago, that the proclamation of the gospel is restraining the lawless one. And that that proclamation of the gospel is in charge of one of God's angels who will then take his hand off of it. Having said all that, I disagree. In humility, at this point, as I understand the scriptures, I think the lawless one will be revealed by Satan himself, based on verse 9. I don't think we have to go that far out of the text To see who it is. And it's strange to think that Satan, who uses this lawless one, who actually will give him power and ability to do signs and wonders and to deceive people, 
that he is actually holding him back at this point in time. But he too has plans. He too is waiting for the right moment. And we see here in the text that Paul, what he speaks of here in 2 Thessalonians, I think mirrors much of what John speaks of in Revelation. So can I, can I ask you to follow me over there for a quick second? Revelation chapter 13. Now I know the book of Revelation is a really difficult book. There's a lot of images. There's a lot of really, really strong, visual powerful, extravagant language used. And I think this is a passage, even though it has some of that language in it, is clear enough for us to gain some benefit from understanding what is going on in Second Thessalonians. So if you look at Revelation chapter 13, you could read the whole chapter later this afternoon. Maybe not what you want to do on the 4th of July, but hey, um, let's look at verses 5 through 10. The beast. Now, I understand the beast to be referring to the son of destruction, the lawless one. Okay? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And what he says then at the end of verse 10, here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So I think what we're seeing in Revelation mirrors that which Paul is speaking of here in Revelation or in 2 Thessalonians 2. And we must not assume that as soon as this person is revealed, their destruction comes immediately. Whether John in Revelation 13 is speaking of a literal 42 months, three and a half years, or whether that's a figurative, it it really doesn't matter at this moment. What's clear is he will influence and have power and authority for a season before Jesus returns. And what I love about verse 8 is what Martin Luther tapped into when we, he wrote that beautiful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word will fell him. What does, John, what does Paul say? He is the one whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Now, let's just, for the sake of the kids here, okay? Bad breath, not the problem. Okay? This is, you think about this, with a command, with his voice. The voice, John, John describes Jesus as the word who became flesh, right? That word is supposed to take us back to Genesis 1 and 2 when God uses his word to create. That word then is when Jesus, by his very appearing, the word will speak a word that will destroy this one whom has controlled everyone and everything. I mean, that's power. That's real power. That's, that's not demonic power. That's cosmic. That's creative power. Jesus will destroy him I like this thought. I think God gave it to me. It's not my own. It's not from somebody else either. But as easily as one exhales, Jesus is going to destroy the son of destruction. How's that for an image, right? Gone. What's clear is that right now, this great evil is being restrained. 
But as we get to verse 9, we see there's coming a day when he will be unleashed upon the world. And verses 9 through 12 give us this macro level of what is taking place. Paul wants the church to not just be here and now in the moment. Hey, life is hard. Suck it up, Christian. Just know this, that even if they kill you, your home is heaven. And bless God, we're just going to keep on. He wants, and this is because God wants us to know the big picture. And thanks be to God that we don't have to live in ignorance in a very small-minded way, but that he's opened his word to us to show us what is going to take place on an epic scale, a worldwide, global scale. We discover that the source behind the lawlessness and the son's destruction, and it's none other than Satan. Jesus described him as a murderer and the father of lies, John 8, 44. The Apostle John, as we re- would read in Revelation 19 or 12, describes him as the great dragon and the accuser of the brethren. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, John writes. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You see, there's not an impersonal image or agent here. This evil is not an intangible, immaterial object. It's personified in Lucifer. And just in case you haven't thought about this in a while, we remember that he was a created angel by God who was to be in the presence of the Holy of Holies. And yet he was one who wanted to be like God, and he led a group of angels to rebel against God. And he was cast down, as John says, and since that time he has sought to destroy mankind because we bear God's image. Now, Satan is no friend to any human being, not a single one. He is not a friend to the non-Christian. He loves to kill. He cares not about his own end. He knows his, his certain future. He knows who God is better than we do. And he knows that there will be a day of reckoning for him. And he doesn't care. It's not like he's trying to clean himself up and restore some level of righteousness. He, he wants to bring down as many as possible with him. He is not a friend to us. And it ought to be no surprise that as Satan's pawn, this son of destruction has the same characteristics of Satan. He will deceive many and lead them to our deaths. And if you were to take some time and and just spell out some contrast between this son of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, and you compare it to Christ, you'd see something. It would show us why this pawn of Satan is called the Antichrist. He's described as the son of destruction. Jesus identifies himself as the son of God. The son of destruction is revealed by Satan. But the son of God is revealed by God in the fullness of time. This son of destruction opposes what is true, spreads lies, and exalts himself. You describe that? As pride. But Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's meek. He's humble. This lawless one seizes power for himself. He demands worship. He proclaims himself to be God. But it's the Father who gives Jesus all authority and power because of his obedience, his obedience and his righteousness. Jesus isn't taking what's his. It's being given to him. This this is a man who delights in breaking the law in contrast to the one who perfectly kept every single part of the law. 
This is why he's called the Antichrist. Everything Jesus stands for, he hates. I mean, this is a serious season for our world. Satan's tool will be accompanied by power and signs. What Paul says here, the coming of the lawless one in verse 9. With power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Now, what, what the Greek is showing is that all three things are connected with falsehood. Power, signs, and wonders. He will do things that are undeniably wild, impressive, and everything he does is connected to a lie in order to deceive. He's nothing more than a counterfeiter. He is a feckless knockoff of the true Jesus. Though signs and wonders may be real, the source and the power behind him, it's motivated by hate and lies because his goal is to keep people from the truth by deceiving them with his lies. He will so deceive people, they will embrace what is wicked and call it righteous. And then we come to verse 10, 11, and 12, and we see the judgment of God. Why is it that the son of destruction is able to exert such power over people? We're told there at, at the end of verse 9, because, uh, sorry, verse 10, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. People who reject the gospel and the salvation that it offers through Jesus Christ are people most prone to the devil's lies and deceptions. Did you hear that? That is why they need the gospel. And how will they hear unless we tell them? This is, this is practically a rebuke to us as a church. If we are not sharing the gospel, we are, by our passivity, by our laziness, by our indifference, by our lack of love, allowing people to fall under the charms of this deceiver. And their end is a certain destruction. In the Old Testament, the image is used of a watchkeeper, someone who stays up all night watching the gates of the city and the walls, and who, upon seeing the enemy, raises the alarm and calls people to ready themselves. And if we are not that watch people for our generation, we are not fulfilling God's purpose for us. In fact, we're being disobedient. And by our disobedience, there's blood on our hands. Can we go to every person? Even here in Rapid City, certainly not. But praise God that he's placed lost people around you to whom you're accountable for. So start seeing the place you go to school, the place you shop, the place you work, your very neighborhood as your turf. Claim it as God's property and start sharing the gospel with those people. Be intentional about it. We need to be like the psalmist who loved God's Word and praised the Father for its teaching and its truth. Psalm 19 and all of Psalm 119, the psalmist is delighting in God's laws. He saw them as life and the way to life and joy and peace and contentment and communion with God. These people, though, that are perishing are perishing for the simple reason that they rejected the salvation found in Jesus Christ. And their further rejection of God's truth led to the susceptibility of being even more deceived and employed by Satan's tool. They're indifferent to the gospel, and therefore the morality of God's law is lost on them. They want nothing to do with it. Christians, we need to pray that God will open our hearts to love and meditate on His Word, to fellowship with Him. We need to pray that God would change us and move us so that we will share embarrassing, stumbling over our words, nervous, stomach pains, the turmoil. We need to get past our anxieties and our fears. The need is that real. 
The judgment of God falls on them because they did not welcome and love God's truth. And so God will cause them to embrace a strong delusion. Now again, referring to that same exegetical summary series that I spoke of a moment ago, there's two ways to understand this. Since they were not willing to receive the truth, God justly or judicially hardens them so that they will believe the falsehood. The other understanding is the power that's displayed here is more like a moral principle that God has established. They did not love the truth, and as an inevitable judgment, a power operates in them that causes them to be deceived. And in the last case, Satan is the author of this deception. There's a real wrestling here in this passage because does God cause people to sin? I mean, fundamentally, we could ask that question. If God is causing a strong delusion to come upon them, is he actually kind of nudging them and pushing them to sin? And then by doing so, does God pervert and taint his holiness? You didn't want to play according to my rules. I'm taking my ball and going home. We have to wrestle with this. And I think that when we do and as we do, we see that according to verse 12, God is doing what he is doing in order that they will be judged for rejecting the truth and taking pleasure in doing evil. James says this, James 1, 13 through 15, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So if you like fly fishing or fishing for anything in any way possible, here's the image. You are placing bait in front of that fish and the lust in that fish makes it long for that bait and it will pursue it and it will grab it and then when it's on the hook sin is conceived and that sin will lead to that fish's death we also discover from these verses that there is a real Reality that we have to wrestle with of God's sovereignty and human culpability. You see, they're responsible for rejecting God's truth and, and His salvation. And then God further hardens them and allows them to be deceived and deluded into believing something else that will ultimately damn them. And God is not responsible in the sense of guilt. God is not guilty of wrongdoing for people who have made choices to reject Him and then find themselves believing a lie. We could go back to other passages in the Old Testament that speak of God sending a spirit of deception because of the wickedness of people who had already committed themselves to rejecting His truth. And so as a result of judgment, He will let them have the very thing that they have been pursuing. We also discover that there's no such thing as complete human autonomy in these verses. You see, we, each and every one of us, the most beautiful baby, is born with a sin nature. Each of us exists or exhibits an innate bent toward sin, a strong and willful desire to declare ourselves autonomous from our Creator. Why does a child, as soon as it can, turn away from a spoon of peace? Well, let's be honest, nobody likes peas. It wants to show its will. I don't want to eat what mom or dad is giving me. As soon as it can crawl, when you say, come here, and it turns and goes the other ways. When it climbs up and reaches something that it's been told not to touch, why does it do that? It's not because it's innocent. It's because it has a will it is showing and demonstrating, and that will has been tainted by sin. 
Not only do we discover that we have a sin nature, but we also see that that sin nature is further exaggerated and enhanced by Satan himself who deceives and seeks to destroy. You see, there is no innocence in this world. There is no completely autonomous person in this world. We're all ruled by our hearts, and then those hearts are being affected by a deceiver or one who speaks truth. There's just no other alternatives. Our society denies the existence of God, the eternality of the human soul, and life after death. And with that deluded thinking, we're told that this moment is the only one that matters. What we do in this life, whether good or bad, it all ends in this life. And the Scriptures stand in stark contradiction to that. For they declare that God created us with a body and soul which He will resurrect and equip either for an eternity with Him in heaven or an eternity apart from Him in judgment. We are deceived if we think that this life is all there is. And so these curtains are pulling back the curtain, as it were, and showing us that there's so much more going on. Paul will write of this to another church in Ephesians. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this isn't the length that I'm putting on this isn't designed to cause us to have an unhealthy fixation with the supernatural. It's to remind us that there is a spiritual world in this present physical world. That we often deny demonic powers and the influence that's at work when we don't recognize those as existing. Obviously, we're going to deny them if we don't believe that they exist. Yet God has established places where we have the freedom to exercise our wills, but even that is limited because those wills are influenced by our sinful nature and by Satan. Unless God intervenes, we'd all be condemned. And that's the way that verses 11 and 12 play out. There's a day coming when Satan and all who serve him will be destroyed along with all who reject God and his truth. God will send a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Romans speaks of this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And Paul goes on to spell out what that is. And though they know God's righteous decree, he ends chapter 1 with, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They are heaping sin upon sin. To rightly interpret verses 10 through 12, we have to keep in context the chapter in front of us. We are seeing that people are hearing the gospel. They are hearing it and they are rejecting it. And that rejection is further entrenching them in a path of rebellion against God. And that they need to understand that as they continue down this path, it is to be understood that there will come a time where God will no longer contend with sinful man. And he will give them over to the natural repercussions of their wickedness. And so if you are here this morning as one who is shackled by sin and you can't understand why you are doing what you are doing, let me just speak to you for a brief moment. If this is grieving you, if you want to be free from this, let me tell you, God has the power to help Understand that what you are struggling against is not just an area that you need more resources from society. It's not an area where you need more self-control. The teaching of Scripture is that we all are born with this broken nature and that we give ourselves over to sinful attitudes and actions and that we, as we do that, we are yielding ourselves to the control of the God of this world. 
He has deceived us into believing that which is wrong is actually good, that it will fulfill us, that it will meet our needs, that it will bring lasting peace, that it will bring momentary pleasure, that somehow it's okay. I urge you to do what we have done as Christians. Cry out to the God of creation, the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and confess your sin. Beg for mercy. He will hear you and He will set you free. And you will be free indeed. Christian, we need to have confidence in this gospel. We need to believe that this Jesus truly will set people free from sin. Don't just stop because you've received the benefits of Christ's work. You need to share the hope with the nations. We need to speak with boldness and clarity and conviction. Not just pointing out the problems, the repercussions of what happens. We need to point people to the solution. So in the public square, whether that's online or whether that's in person, which I would say in person is so much more winsome, have conversations that point to the gospel rather than arguing policy and procedures. Let's no longer be complacent over those who are lost around us. Pray and ask, God, give me your heart so that I would see these people as sheep without a shepherd, that I would have your compassion. We've been given a message that promises to set the shackled free and it fulfills all those promises. How can we keep this to ourselves? I've been reading the biography of Adoniram Judson And it's interesting as they are moving from the U.S. in the late uh, 1700s, preparing for missions and going out early 1811, 10 or 11, I believe it was. They're over in Burma and India. And they're arguing with people and wrestling and sharing the gospel with people who, who just, I've left home and family and comfort all to share this message with you because I believe it's that true. I mean, is that us? Can we go across the street? Can we talk to someone over a fence? Because we're that convicted with the truth of the message. Well, as we come to the end, verses 13 and 17, I told you we'd spend most of it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put a pin in it here. Okay? We'll come back to this next week, even though we're supposed to be in chapter 3. You've been patient this morning. And I just will say this briefly. Verses 13 through 17 is Paul saying, here's how we understand the results of the gospel. In contrast to those who are deceived and will be condemned, Paul thanks God for saving and sanctifying these believers. And he says, so should you. Look at verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits." To be saved. That means that what God is doing for you, He intends to do for countless others. It doesn't stop with you as the first fruits. You're just the tip of the spear of the work that God is going to do in this world. And because God chose you, He has sanctified you by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, here's the point. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul says, they may be deceived, but those who love the truth will be saved. And God loves us. He chose us to be saved through the Spirit's sanctification and faith in the Word. And we understand that love of God for us because we've heard the Gospel and we responded to the Gospel with faith. And the purpose of all that is that Christ would be glorified. Paul says, stand firm. Hold to our teaching. You've been upset and you've been listening to all the wrong voices. I want you to Focus in. Believe the truth that I've taught you and only that truth. Whether it's be by the spoken word when we were there with you in person or whether it be even in these last two letters. Hold fast. Don't allow your circumstances to move you away from God's word. Every believer ought to stand firm to the teaching 
found in Scripture. That's why we need to know God's Word and love it. We need to put our trust in it. It will help us to resist those things that tempt us and pull away from it. And Paul celebrates a prayer of blessing and thanksgiving, of confidence in the Lord in verses 16 and 17. God is able to do this. God is able to keep you. Even though this day is going to be a very, very dark day, God has the power to keep His people. We who love the truth will not be pulled away into lies. We who love the truth will not become the sons of destruction. We will not be caught up in the lies of our enemy. We will be kept safe. And with these words, let God comfort our hearts. And establish us in every good work and word. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. We pray that you would help us, even as we suffer for the sake of the gospel, to see that our salvation, our sanctification, and your preservation is meant to be a real present comfort. You alone enable us to stand firm and hold fast to the teaching. You alone produce good and godly fruit. We pray, Lord, that you would give us faith to believe your word. We pray that you would give us faith to repent from our sins and to cry out for the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. We pray for the freedom that is in Christ. And we pray this all so that we may with one heart and with one mind and with one voice praise the name of the Lord our God. And unto you, Lord, we pray this that you would do this and fulfill this. In Jesus' name, amen.